Making Contact. I'm your guest host, Paulina Velasco. When you look at the way the coronavirus pandemic is playing out in the United States, the people that are dying, the people that are out of work, and those who are fed up and taking to the streets to protest a racist system to say Black Lives Matter, how is it all connected? There was the, the moment of, oh my God, there is a racial uh, crisis here. Oh my goodness, um, this is actually playing out in uh, devastating ways in its impact on African American, Latinx communities, Native uh, communities. So who knew? Well, actually, a lot of people knew. Right? That's Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a law professor at UCLA and Columbia Law Schools and the co founder and executive director of the African American Policy Forum. Crenshaw developed the theory of intersectionality 30 years ago. Intersectionality refers to how multiple forms of discrimination, like, for example, based on your race, gender, or class, can overlap or intersect in your experience of the world and how you're treated. Like, for example, a Black woman is discriminated against not solely for being Black and not solely for being a woman, but for the intersection of those two identities. Crenshaw's framework allows us to see that there's a compounding, an intersection of problems, and it's a useful tool to look at our current crises. Kimberly Crenshaw spoke about the need for intersectionality in an interview with Janine Jackson, hosted by Haymarket Books and the African American Policy Forum on May 5th, 2020. She says many people made the mistake of discarding intersectionality when the COVID crisis set in. At the time, the conversation was still in the, well, this may be the one thing that brings everybody to the table to recognize the need for universal health care. This will be the one moment that we have been theorizing will happen that will cause people to give up their fantasies about whiteness, maleness, whatever, and they'll recognize that we're all just one race, the human race, and we need to pull all together. So there was this sense that um, this is the moment that shows that all quote-unquote identity-oriented politics that are not human identity politics uh, are yesterday's news, and they don't do us any good. Um, and so I was pretty much clear that this was just going to be another moment where human crises would not create the moment of recognition of our common humanity, and that that crisis was actually going to reinforce the pre-existing structured and historical vulnerabilities that we've been trying to use intersectionality to talk about, you know, for a generation. Now we do have these outcomes that suggest that we're not all in this together. Um, you know, COVID may be uh, an equal opportunity, uh, lethal force, but it doesn't impact us in an equal way. How now do we talk about these differences? 
And that's when we saw, I think, the consequences of over a decade of post-racial, non-racial, colorblind discourse. So if you don't have a robust framework that is attending to structured institutional forms of uh, power, if you don't have a structural racism framework and you're looking at difference, you take power out of the equation, all you have is difference. And the difference is embodied in the people who are being differently impacted. So that's why we get a Surgeon General who comes on and uh, uses racialized, racially coded talk to basically say, you have control over this. You have to start acting differently. So the disease is actually projected into bodies, into communities, into culture. That's the consequence of not having an analysis that, number one, is attending to pre-existing inequalities, and number two, that understands that you can have a, a, a dynamic, which is COVID, which itself may be you know, obviously a blind to social difference, but it intersects with pre-existing social differences that produce these outcomes. So one of, one of the things that, you know, sort of a go-to point that I make with respect to the importance of um, an intersectional prism is that if you if you really don't have the language to to see a problem, you can't really fix it. And um, the I guess the the primary example of that is that the language that we currently have that's mainstream um, is an understanding of of uh, inequality as being unjust only if it's produced by some decision maker whose absolute intent reason for doing the thing they're doing is because of um, uh, bigotry, uh, hatred, uh, or at minimum, complete and utter disdain for a particular group. Um, where does that idea come from? Part of that idea comes from um, sort of the history of how certain disciplines have conceptualized uh, what uh, discrimination uh, is, what it what it is constituted by, uh, within the American Academy, the idea that you know discrimination and illegitimate power should be thought about as structural as opposed to uh, a, a, a feature of, of psychology uh, was uh, fought about and lost in the fifties. Right, there were earlier ways of thinking about inequality as a societal problem that looked at its sociology and its structure as opposed to its psychology um, and, and its individual you know, sort of personality-driven uh, uh, contours. But that got lost. And part of the consequence of that loss is that when law finally started to pay attention to discrimination, it had readily available to it after a very short period of debate, a very narrow conception of what constitutes illegitimate inequality. And that basically uh, became the moment when the law adopted that in, in a case called Washington versus Davis. The only thing that really counts as illegitimate inequality as far as the constitution is concerned is when an actor decides to go after people simply because of who they are 
Well, that's a very small subset of all the ways that illegitimate power plays out across race, uh, gender, and, and other um, uh, groups. But making that move means that constitutional law uh, became increasingly less useful to uh, dismantle white supremacy, to dismantle the illegitimate expectations um, that uh, many white voters had in the status quo staying exactly the way it was. And then that gets doubled down by the fact that um, the right figured out pretty early that a key place where they could draw the line in the sand and protect their interests was the courts. So now the courts are completely on board. The consequences of these uh, decisions we're going to see in the future when um, lawsuits start coming up, not only with respect to the groups that are completely shut out of the uh, the remedies to uh, the economic downturn, but there are going to be lawsuits about um, opening up these uh, economies, knowing that people are going to die. There are going to be lawsuits about, you know, um, not being able to work because of suspicion that you might uh, be infected. There are going to be all sorts of lawsuits. And largely, many of these lawsuits are going to go into court with judges that have been appointed by the Federalist Society during a time where the right was clear about the need to take over the courts. So it's, again, another moment where I think it's important to be able to fully understand the different dimensions of empowerment. You're listening to Kimberly Crenshaw speaking about how the framework of intersectionality can help us understand the coronavirus pandemic's unequal impacts. But she says this useful tool is often misunderstood and manipulated. 30 years later, uh, intersectionality has now been framed as all sorts of things, but the most interesting part of, of it to me is the way that it's been picked up as... Uh, uh, sort of a battering ram, you know, by by the right uh, to accuse progressives of identity politics. And um, what I find fascinating about that is that the main claim uh, made by what I call the anti-intersectional intersectionalists is a grievance claim that itself is a product of identity politics. So. Um, you know, a Lindsey Graham, for example, in, in that moment uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings that some of us still uh, have post-traumatic stress around, um, there's a moment where he gave voice to this anti-intersectional intersectionality when he says, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a straight white man and, and I know that I'm supposed to shut up, you know, but I'm not going to show up, shut up. And he goes on, you know, with this, um, you know, a grievance we are, you know, being oppressed by, you know, all of these various uh, groups that all come together under the intersectional frame. It's clear from that moment that the complaint against intersectionality is not that it's about the intersections of identity. It's not about, it's, and it's clearly not about, um, you know, uh, structured inequalities. It's just about the people that they see riding in this vehicle and the politics that come with those people um, and the histories that come with those politics. That, that's what much of the critique of intersectionality is all about. 
Instead, it's important to see intersectionality as a prism for helping us see and predict and interact with the pre-existing structures that intersectionality um, can help us see and that COVID has laid bare. One hears echoes of some of the same impatient distancing from uh, intersectional sensibilities uh, within our quarters as one hears on the right. And, and I've seen that, I've, I've seen it written, like this is the post-intersectional moment. What the heck does that mean? Um, when, when we can look across at this moment uh, and see, you know, uh, essential yet expendable, you know, worker reflects the same uh, a con convergence of vulnerable identities now that it, as it did, you know, decades ago. Um, what does it mean to say we're post-intersectional uh, when uh, we can look at, we've called them geographies of confinement, and see that the, um, the risk of COVID uh, is uh, dramatically increased uh, for those uh, populations who live at the intersections of lots of things. Um, let, let's look at, you know, uh, how markets situate some workers, uh, both uh, uh, in terms of our own national market, but globally uh, as people who are essential but actually have no real home. Um, we look at um, the intersections uh, and confinement within a community. So if we look at uh, food deserts, if we look at places where um, one has to uh, drive for 100 miles uh, to get to a hospital, as we learned in um, uh, Indian country, uh, the, that's intersections of uh, settler colonialism, of class, of, of just political marginality. We could continue to name all of these places where the morbidity tracks onto uh, being confined uh, both physically but also politically uh, by the forces of white supremacy, by the for forces of patriarchy, and so on. I don't know how you look at that stuff and say we're post-intersectional. I literally do not know what people are talking about when they say that. I think the, the most perhaps uh, kind of unusual aspect of that was when we did um, uh, geographies of confinement and talked about uh, uh, the clusters of death that are happening in prisons and, and in ICE facilities and what's happening in, in nursing homes. The tendency is to see what's happening in nursing homes and, and what's happening in prisons as sort of mutually exclusive. The populations is mutually exclusive. Uh, the justifications for what is happening to them as mutually exclusive. But if you actually start looking uh, more closely, you see in both of these populations, there are, are people who have largely been written off, uh, either because of some projection of choice, they, they did things that put them in that situation, or inevitability, they are just older people, and older people um, are subject um, to, uh, to COVID. And what's less seen is that these, are, um, uh, these, these death facilities are the product of choices. They're product of choices of using the carceral state. 
um, as a, a mechanism of social ordering um, and, and disciplinary social ordering on top of that. Uh, choices uh, about now that that has been an investment, not to uh, practice humanitarian release and 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 let people go. Um, their choices about warehousing older people um, and doing so with a profit motivation that ensures that you know ninety percent of people in nursing homes are going to have some experience uh, of neglect, uh, and that's across class. And then finally, there are those. A commonality uh, of interest between those who have to work in those facilities and those who have to live in them. So partly because of the profit motivation, um, uh, workers who work in these facilities uh, often cannot sustain their lives on those wages, which means that they move from one facility to another. They have uh, multiple responsibilities. It makes uh, them vulnerable. It makes the people that they are caring for vulnerable. It makes their you know, families vulnerable. So all of these are moments where when we start talking about confinement, then we, you know, talk more broadly about what's happening in the home, what's happening in native country, what's happening in formally uh, segregated communities. We are able to see where intersectional commonalities exist and hopefully um, come up with ways of expecting something different in the aftermath. We don't want to go back to normal. Normal was messed up. We were doing um, a webinar a couple of weeks ago when we were introducing the idea of uh, disaster white supremacy, uh, building off of the great Naomi Klein's work about um, disaster capitalism and you know, directly interrogating the ways that disasters uh, present opportunities uh, for uh, white supremacist projects that um, may have not been fully expressed or articulated or uh, may have uh, had to uh, be produced in ways in which the supremacist dimensions uh, were suppressed or hidden uh, behind, you know, frameworks of, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the losses of middle America or rural America, um, where whiteness is not uh, expressly part of it. Uh, but in the disaster moment, um, those those shackles come off and uh, one gets the full Monty, as it were. So we we want to uh, talk about how emergencies, how moments of anxiety, uh, moments of economic and, and political instability are not necessarily moments where we all come together. Historically, in the United States, there have been moments where we fall apart. After all, we had a civil war. Um, and we've had many smaller versions of these wars since then. So I think COVID is, again, a, a, an opportunistic disease uh, that facilitates the um, uh, converging of many right-wing uh, flavors uh, of politics. They are able to uh, elevate a whiteness as its ideological expression. Um, elevating whiteness as it has been expressed ac uh, across, you know, the centuries here, um, and, and do so in a way that normalizes stuff that, 
you know, uh, Trump began to normalize by saying, oh, they're nice people, you know, on both sides to, oh, those are nice people taking, uh, taking guns to the Capitol. The governor should sit down with them. This normalization is an incredible danger. And we've got to stop seeing it as just fringe politics. We've got to see it as uh, potentially the politics of the future. That's Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, and you're listening to Making Contact and radioproject.org. What are your thoughts on intersectionality, COVID-19, Black Lives Matter? Give us a call at 510-239-3899. That's 510-239-3899. Or join the conversation on social media. On Twitter, we're at making underscore contact. Kimberly Crenshaw appeared on Haymarket Books Forum on intersectionality and COVID before the U.S. erupted in protests against police murders of Black people. Those protests were followed by increased police brutality and state violence. Much like Crenshaw predicted, white supremacy reared its head. Soon after, Crenshaw went on Pacifica's show, Letters and Politics, on June 1st, 2020, to talk to host Mitch Jezerich about how intersectionality is key to understanding this moment as well. Well, I'm thinking about many different aspects of, I guess, a common theme, and that would be the precarity of Black life um, in the United States. We are now in the moment in which um, many people are grieving having seen an African-American man uh, being killed uh, deliberately, it seems. Um, His suffering not being heard, his uh, pleas for his life being disregarded, um, officers seemingly taking this as just another day at the office, uh, snuffing out another life. Uh, The inhumanity of it, I think, is shocking to so many people. And at the same time, I struggle to hold the um, uh, unfathomable dimension of this man's life being taken, along with the thousands of people who are dying every day uh, from decisions that have been made to prioritize Uh, the economy, to prioritize the comfort, to prioritize the preferences and the privileges of some over the lives and the well-being of others. And holding these together at the same time is, is, you know, in some ways an act of jujitsu. You have to be responsive to the emergency that happens and you have to also see the emergency that's always been there that this is built on top of. We are shocked when we see elements of American life that seem to be ripped from the pages of history. We're seeing, frankly, lynchings happening um, now, you know, too many. Uh, There shouldn't be any, but to see them happening again is shocking. Let's think about what makes this possible, right? Police departments across the country spend millions of dollars every year in settling cases like these, 
the police officers involved, although these were fired, um, are often free to go somewhere else and actually uh, become a police officer. So, for example, the police officer that killed Tamir Rice, he was the little boy who was killed in Cleveland when a police officer rolled up on him and got out of the car and shot him because uh, he was reported uh, as, as having a gun, turned out to be a toy gun. He had been dismissed from another police department um, as, as unfit. Uh, for service. Uh, many uh, police officers are, are able to go somewhere else. Why? A, there's no registry. There is no um, uh, mechanism that is fully enforceable across all police departments th that makes it clear um, that if you have been fired because of abuse of your authority, because you have killed people, because you are untrainable, because you are unfit, there's nothing that prevents them if the police departments themselves um, don't commit to it, to, to hiring them. Why is that? Well, one of the most powerful unions we have is the police uh, union. Uh, and part of their power is because they are able to convince the majority of Americans, we are the ones that are protecting you. If, if our ability to do what we have to do in order to protect you um, is constrained uh, in, in ways that make it uh, tougher for us to do our job, then law and order is going to suffer. You are going to suffer. So these are just some of the ways that we have to begin unpacking what are the conditions of possibility that allow this problem to go on uninterrupted. That's something that we can change. We can change that by making these issues uh, politically costly for mayors, for elected officials. If there are unjustified killings like this, you are going to suffer at the polls. And then we've got to put our political uh, resources in the middle of that and say, not in our name will we allow you to continue killing people and otherwise abusing them, saying that you are, are promoting law and order. This is law and disorder. This is law and inequality. And we refuse to allow you to use us as the justification for it. That can be done. There just hasn't been political will as yet to make that happen. It is important to recognize that uh, police violence and vigilante violence, um, which uh, happened to Ahmad Arbery, are all a piece of the precarity of Black life. There is violence um, that happens uh, both public and private, and it's both historical violence and contemporary violence, all an expression of the fact that Black life has largely been seen as expendable, essential but expendable. That, that's been the basic logic of our presence here since, since, since we arrived on these shores. Absolutely essential to building the country. And the terms of our presence have always been one in which Black life has taken a backseat to um, property, to um, uh, markets, uh, to home uh, values, to professions. Uh, and now, you know, to the comfort and, and security of people who want to go back to getting their hair cut and getting their uh, nails done and going to restaurants. That's a logic that is pretty much like a slave logic. It's you exist for us. Um, uh, we don't exist for you. So we don't have to do anything to protect your life.
I think it's important to draw the line between the killing on the street um, that happened to George Floyd, the killing in the home that happened to Breonna uh, Taylor, the threat of calling the police um, that that we saw in, in Central Park, and the broader, huger, you know, decision to go back to work, knowing that the disproportionate impact of that is going to be on particular lives. Question is, if it were the other way around, um, what would we be looking at? That that I think really is, you know, the moment in which we have to think about how race may be the condition of this possibility. That was Kimberly Crenshaw on Letters and Politics with host Mitch Jezerich and produced by Diana Martinez. Janine Jackson hosted the conversation about intersectionality, convened by the African American Policy Forum and Haymarket Books. Special thanks to John McDonald. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw hosts a webinar called Under the Blacklight, the Intersectional Failures that COVID Lays Bare, and also has a podcast, Intersectionality Matters. We'll link to those at our site, radioproject.org. I'm Paulina Velasco. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>